Welcome back to Red Star Radio for this, the weekend edition. And have we got a dramatic show lined up for you today. We've got everything from dramatic testimonies in the mother of all parliaments, supposedly, to um, idiotic statements from scientists, again, this time in a slightly different direction, to the looming spectre of inflation, crises in the repo market, all that and much, much more. Layla, this is this is an exciting time to be alive, is it not? Oh, yeah, definitely exciting, and but also very ridiculous at the same time. So it's uh, it's a dialectical time to be alive. <laughs> yes, it's like there's a dialectic between like dread, excitement, <laughs> and uh, maybe a synthesis of high farce. Yes, yeah, it's a it's a known uh, dialectic um, up until now. So uh, it's a good thing we're here to podcast while it's all going on. <laughs> Shall we then begin with um, what I would describe as an element of low farce, um, which is the appearance of Boris Johnson's former chief advisor, Dominic Cummings, before a parliamentary committee in London this week. Um, should I explain who Dominic Cummings is? Yeah, yeah. Like, how is it being... Uh, give us a being British update. Being... <laughs> Update from the. Um, I know that most of our audience is going to be in the is in the United States and Canada. So update from the motherland. Basically, uh, things are not good as it turns oh, okay. out. Uh, despite being presided over by the uh, the only talented bourgeois politician who has a standing invite to come on the show, Boris, if you're listening, um, I'm sure you want to start set the record straight. Um, Dominic Cummings appeared this week for a uh, House of Commons parliamentary committee to answer questions on the uh, the pandemic response and who Dominic Cummings is is important because he was he's been a long time government advisor. He was an advisor to Michael Gove when he was Education Secretary. He uh, then fell out with everybody and left the government. Then came back to run the Brexit pro Brexit campaign. He's regarded as some sort of dark genius by the London media shitterati because um, he is slightly more intelligent, but not by much, than most of the politicians and journalists in, in and around the Palace of Westminster and is just a little bit more blunt in his speech than they are. So they regard him with some sort of mixture of fear or jealousy and your usual combination of emotions that manifestly inadequate people get. So, so, so Alex, um, so he's basically like the go-to advisor for a lot of conservative politicians. Is that what you're saying? Well, he was Boris's chief advisor right. for about 18 months. Okay. And before that was close to him working on the Brexit campaign. So he's Boris's chief advisor and chief strategist. Mm-hmm. Um, he probably, he did gain a lot of unpopularity when he, he told Boris to basically, uh, remove the Conservative Party whip from rebellious pro EU conservative MPs, uh, towards the end of 2019. Uh, which was successful in terms of actually uh, pushing Boris's Brexit policy through. Um, so, as a strategist, he's 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 got a little bit more about him than many of them, which is why he stands out. But his testimony this week revealed something that was uh, quite damning for both him, the civil service in Britain, and really Boris himself. So, like Cummings was testifying to the early stages in the COVID outbreak before the first lockdown in April of last year and was talking about how um, as the 
the virus was reported to have spread uh, out out of China into Europe. It was uh, uh, reported to be raging around Italy. That Boris uh, basically said, "Well, look, we uh, we just need to respond to it like we did the swine flu and bird flu outbreaks." And and he he, he claimed that Boris made a, a sort of uh, a statement that should damn him, whereby saying that Boris said, "Well, it's mainly affecting uh, the over eighties." Oh. Um, which is actually true. Yeah. So apparently Boris knew that back in March last year, Damn. but failed to do anything about it. Um, Cummings also said that like the senior civil servants and SAGE were basically, this that's the government's scientific advisory group here, were all in a panic and claiming like senior civil servants were, were screaming at each other that they didn't have a plan to deal with this. And uh, Cummings was agreeing with them that they didn't have a plan to deal with it. But you see there, he's simply lying. Yeah. Because there was, as we've said on the on this show on new, numerous times, there was a pre-established pandemic protocol that was uh, ten years old. Yeah. And went and had been updated ju- just the previous year, so 2019, which focused on the things that um, Dr. Martin Koldorf talked about in his interview with us, which uh, we released a few episodes ago. Uh, focus protection for those most at risk and things like that. Now, what Cummings didn't say and was not asked because the idiotic MPs on that committee were all hysterics who were, you know, total true believers in the COVID narrative was, why why was that pre-established plan dumped? Yeah. But from what his his testimony was basically his his attempt to have revenge on Boris who he'd fallen out with so he was trying to portray Boris as not taking it seriously as opposing lockdowns mm-hmm. which we know that he did but the damning thing to me isn't that like Boris didn't take, wanted to use the existing protocol and didn't take didn't think it was too serious an outbreak the damning thing to me is that he got bounced into doing the opposite and to me, the, what's clear from Cummings' testimony, uh, bearing in mind he has put his own spin on it, but even his own spin makes him and the senior civil servants and the cabinet all look like brain-dead idiots in that they had a plan in place. Um, they dumped that, even according to Cummings' own testimony, in what was essentially an escalating wave of panic inside a small circle of bureaucrats and top scientists in March of last year. And if you listen to our episodes on COVID and why the lockdowns were done and why all these scientists basically went in a sort of herd-like mentality over the edge of a cliff, well, it, this is why. This is like these. This is like small groups of elite people who are largely disconnected from the world making decisions based on like media hysteria. And a lot of people who maybe had doubts about this inside the scientific community abandoned the scientific method and went with the panic because this was what was then established as the the method of operating in those circles. And Cummings basically confirmed all of that in his testimony. He also mentioned that Boris did meet with two of the authors of the Great Barrington Declaration, Sunetra Gupta and uh, Carl Hennehan. Um, who basically were trying to tell him that uh, they needed to go back to evidence-based medicine again, evidence-based public health policy, and that there was another guy in the meeting from SAGE 
who then presented a graph that he'd taken from, not from any scientific data, but from a national newspaper, which claimed there would be something like 400,000 admissions to <laughs> hospitals based on the new wave last September. And this is why we got the additional lockdown at the end of the year. Oh, and this pre-solved. So, <laughs> yeah, this is... So this, these guys were... Basically, what was happening was the press were getting hysterical... Yeah then Sage and the senior civil servants were taking all of their information from the hysterical press, repackaging it, and then presenting it to Boris and saying, look, a lot of these people are going to die. So like they basically said to Boris, if you don't do another lockdown, you'll be responsible for like hundreds and hundreds of thousands of deaths and the health service will collapse. And of course, none of this happened. But it, this is what was happening. Like these, these were like elites, elite groups of people, basically um, winding each other up in a vacuum to the point where they completely divorced themselves from reality and that one side of them was just reinforcing the other. So even so, if Cummings meant to look bar, make Boris look bad, well, yeah, Boris does look bad, but because mainly because he adopted a useless, ineffective policy based on um, hysteria and going against his own better political instincts. That doesn't say a great deal for Boris's leadership skills, really. No, because he still he still wasn't right. The real answer is that COVID yeah. is fucking fake. Sorry, the lockdowns are fake. Sorry, the pandemic yeah. is fake. <laughs> Sorry. Keep up reading. All of those things. <laughs> it's just hard to keep track. <laughs> like what's real and what's not real. <laughs> but um, yeah, he yeah. definitely was a little closer to reality than most of them. So I can't stay mad at Boris. Um, I forgive him on your behalf. Alex, um, <laughs> um, that sucks though. That's that's really crazy. I hope that our my country Canada uh, has um, a similar similar uh, spectacle. Um, but I think more and more of these things will start coming out. I believe, and I, I this this isn't oh, yeah. even the full extent of it. Like, there's oh, this is this be is far just worse, scratching the surface. I think, I think, yeah, this is a real tip of the iceberg moment, which is mm -hmm. like. It just confirms like all of our worst suspicions about how these decisions are actually made. Yeah, I it and this is why like you don't need a conspiracy. You just need a bunch of people who number 1 are not very intelligent to begin with. Number 2 That certainly <laughs> qualifies the British cabinet. <laughs> number 2 I think that they're really smart though. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and number three, never get any kind of um oppositional uh force to them. Um so never have to deal with like someone, you know, questioning them on what they're saying. Um and so that they just make decisions and they think they're right. So and, and like like no one ever questions what they do or challenges them on it. So it, it's not this is like very unsurprising if you just look at it from the perspective of bourgeois irrationality. I don't think people realize how stupid and irrational these people really are. And so they have to like invent all these crazy stories to try to make sense of things. But it, it really is that simple. Unfortunately, I think. Yeah. Um, I, I imagine that the story will be very similar when and if you get um, some kind of testimonial from inside the the cabinet of Doug Ford, it'll be as stupid and, sh and idiotic as anything that we've been capable of providing. Yeah. Um, 
I, I am curious um, to see how these things were done in the United States. Like in the United States, especially, I would be interested. Like, I think there's a bit more dynamism there, definitely, than Canada. Yeah. So, like, I'm interested in seeing how things worked out, work through the, uh, well, I, the political organs there. Yeah, I think also like the United States, it was all a, it was all a little bit more transparent, wasn't it? In that the in like like I mean, whatever Trump said, like the political establishment went the went and hysterically screamed the opposite. So like when Trump played it down, they all hysterically played it up. Yeah. And mm-hmm. when Trump said it's all China's fault, they said no, it's not. It's all Trump's fault. Now Trump's gone. Strangely enough, the story's changing, isn't it? Yeah, which brings me to a topic I've been spending many hours on this week, which is the resurgence of the lab leak theory. Um, so, Alex, I'm just curious, like, what did you think of this theory when you first uh, encountered it from Trump? Like, did you think it was plausible or did you just think it was Trump mouthing off against China as usual? I'm just curious well, to well, get your first impression. Well, there's several different variations of the lab leak story, isn't there, which we'll unpack. But the the one that Trump was basically going around stating it means it seemed to me even back at the time that it was basically just a propaganda war between trump and the chinese um and as we've explored in previous episodes like the 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 trump's weaponization of the of covid as a narrative against the chinese government is part of the reason why we got such uh, dramatic uh, theatrics from the Chinese government, such as their uh, theatrical lockdowns, etc. So I always thought that it was basically just a, a propaganda story, and nothing's changed my mind about that. Yeah. Well, unfortunately, it seems like not many people have your very good instincts. Um <laughs> Uh, because people are now, it seems, taking it very seriously. I've seen some serious journalists who are usually relatively critically minded um, bring this story up and say, you know what? We do need an investigation. We do need to look into this. There is plausible evidence that this is a real thing. Okay, so I'm going to go through why the lab leak theory is actually extremely weak. And it's much weaker than the idea that this virus just emerged naturally. And I think the problem is that like COVID-19, there's a ton of technical details um, that people will use to bluster up the lab leak theory and people get confused or they just don't have time to go through all of these details and fact check or they don't understand the complexity of like microbiology. And so people can kind of uh, mislead them. And I'm going to take you through why I really think it's a very, very weak theory. And the only reason at all that this ever got any attention is because it's useful as a propaganda tool. If there wasn't some kind of inter-imperialist tensions between China and the United States, this theory would never get the light of day. Uh, I just want to give a shout out to Philippe uh, Lemoyne who is a PhD candidate at Cambridge who wrote a very long article going through exactly through why this is not a good, solid theory. It is a really long article. He goes through all the scientific details. I think he does a good enough job like abstracting the um, the dominant concepts from the, the details. So I think anyone can pretty much grasp, grasp it. But I would highly suggest you look at the article. I'll link, it, I'll link to it in the show notes. And I just want to say that everything I'm going to say pretty much comes from from him, from his article here. 
Um, And I just want to read a quote from his article, which I thought was very astute. Um, So he says of the lab leak theorists, whether they're, you know, actual scientists like PhDs in microbiology or whether they're politically interested players or whether they're journalists, all of them, quote, bury the reader under a huge mass of information which they claim support the lab escape theory. In fact, none of the points they make really support that theory, but most readers won't realize that because they lack the knowledge they would need to understand why and or don't have the time to fact check the claims in question. This is once again a situation much like the lockdowns where scientists are using their authority and using the privilege they have as people who have got an education and not sticking to the scientific method and not being critically minded and making political statements instead of making scientific statements. Saying, for instance, that there is, quote, good evidence of a lab leak theory is a political statement. There isn't any good evidence of a lab leak theory. Or saying, for instance, that um, it's it would be so implausible that this uh, virus naturally emerge is not a scientific statement at all. You, the most you can say is that we don't have sufficient evidence to understand how this naturally emerged. To say that it's improbable is is simply not true. Like this is such a narrow view of how the world works and how uh, viruses like travel through human populations that I I I struggle because I'm like, are these people just? Are they stupid or are they willingly trying to deceive people or are they just so committed to the slab leak theory for various reasons that they're they've blinded themselves to any kind of perspective which would allow them to see a bigger picture. Anyways, whatever. So there's like two articles that I read closely that are pro lab leak theory, which people recommended to me on Twitter. One is written by Nicholas Wade. And it's called uh, The Origin of COVID, Did People or Nature Open Pandora's Box at Wuhan? Okay, so Nicholas Wade is a science writer, and he wrote his piece for the hysterical Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, who have been claiming that there's like 17 minutes or less until the end of the world since like 1947. Hey, they've got a clock. (laughs) They've got a clock, and they keep saying it's two minutes to midnight. Actually, we're now 100 seconds. It, Very precise. Which is also um, the, an Iron Maiden song. So oh, interesting. I, oh. That's that's all really that we need to know. Yeah. Well, I do like Iron Maiden, so that makes my opinion of them a little better, actually. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So all of these people, all of these lab leak people will always say, if they're honest, that there actually isn't direct evidence of lab origin. Okay. The way that they always make their case is that they'll say, while there is no direct evidence of lab origin, there isn't direct evidence of natural origin, which is true. And then they'll go into a game, a logical game, where they'll say, well, just look at how, um, look at all these like interesting, like unique attributes of of uh, SARS-CoV-2, uh, which is the virus that causes COVID-19. Look, it has like this unique insertion of um, of protein-like molecules at this place that, you know, is uniquely uh, formed to attach to the human cell. Like, how is that possible? How is it possible that that would have come from natural origin? The only explanation is that it's man-made. Okay, 
So this is the first fallacy that's typically made with the lab leak theory, that the, that this virus is just so well suited to, to um, infecting human cells that, and it's so unique that it couldn't have possibly emerged naturally. Okay, this is what is known as, it's a logical fallacy called um, a sample size fallacy, okay? And it's very common. It's very, um, it happens a lot. It's a failure to take into account the sample size when estimating the probability of, of obtaining a, a particular value from a sample drawn from a known, known population. So we don't actually have, uh, we haven't actually sampled a ton of coronavirus. Our knowledge on coronaviruses is, is relatively limited relative to the huge uh, variety that exists in the natural world. So as far as we know, right, yeah, it does seem quite unique as far as we know, but we don't know a lot about these viruses. So it's completely possible that a virus that has the attributes of SARS-CoV-2 could have gone through various like animal to human pathways like back and forth and gained those attributes naturally until finally evolving to such a state where it could effectively infect human cells. It's completely possible because there are like millions of mutations that happen and there's millions of interactions between animals and humans, especially in a place like China, which has a significant rural population, right? It's completely possible when you contextualize it against those millions upon millions of interactions and mutations and viruses and all of these different things. Just because we haven't um, been able to discover a virus that is similar to that similar to SARS-CoV-2 doesn't mean that it has to have been man-made. This is just a fallacious way of looking at that particular line of argument. So a lot of the articles will kind of go through like what they find are just like so particular uh, biological particularities about the virus and just like it's it's just impossible that this would have emerged from like this branch of the evolutionary tree of the what if there's another branch that we just don't know about that we haven't discovered yet that's very very possible and it doesn't it doesn't it doesn't require you to make all of these ad hoc hypotheses about its origin. Like you just have to acknowledge the objective reality that there is a huge amount of variety within this virus group and very little study relative to this huge variety. We just don't have a great understanding. And it's possible that we just, that something is out there that we haven't yet discovered. It's really that, sim that simple. Um, okay. Uh, hold Another, on. So, go hold ahead. On. <laughs> There's this very, very smart looking guy who's written like an article in The Atlantic um, he, he looks like he's dressed like uh, Where's Waldo? Um, so that makes him more serious. And he says in here, quote, that Nate Silver has declared that the, uh, the lab origin likelihood um, has increased to 60%. And, and he also says there's, there's a lot of speculation, but that means there must oh be something God. to it. I mean, I, I don't think you can really argue with like Nate Silver and speculation. So take that, basically. Another another line of, of reasoning I've seen, actually, is this attempt to uh, quantify probabilities of, like, how probable it is that this comes from a lab versus, like, it emerges naturally from China. So an article that was suggested to me was by Jonathan Lantham, who's um, a virologist or something, or microbiologist um, from Britain, actually. And he tries to say that, like, he tries to like he tries to, to to use math to show like how 
improbable it would have been that a virus both emerged from Wuhan and also um, emerged from like the evolutionary tree that we currently know on the coronaviruses. So this is like fallacious on two fronts. Number one, um, he just computes the probability that the pathogen would have emerged from Wuhan based on like a, a really simple, simplistic view that there's only a, a, a 11 million people in Wuhan and there's 7 billion people on the earth and there's back coronaviruses everywhere on the earth. So the probability that it would have emerged from Wuhan is only one out of 643. This doesn't make any sense. There's a lot of unquantifiable factors which may make China and Wuhan in particular more prone to have to a pandemic like a virus to emerge from there. Like, for instance, Wuhan is not just like some random place in China. It's a major transportation hub. Millions of people travel through that area. China also has the particularly a particularity of being like a highly rural uh, country, unlike many other countries. Also, like um, there might be some cultural attributes within the Chinese population that we don't really understand, which may make it more likely for a virus of animal origin to to be transmitted. Like there's all these like factors that you cannot quantify within a, in a simplistic probability. But like they'll do things like this and then so then present like this very like um, improbable ratio. Like so what he showed was um, so he 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 concludes that the probability um, that a virus would have emerged from Wuhan is only 17,000 to one. Okay, this is just ridiculous because the probability that a virus should, a, a pandemic virus should emerge anywhere is very low. So this probability is just meaningless unless you're going to compare it to other places and show me how this is much, much lower than other places, right? Cause it was on a, or he compares, he just uses this like very low probability and says, then it's, it must have been from a lab. Okay, compute the probability that a lab, that a virus escapes from a lab then. Like you can, the yeah. problem is that this causes a, a reference case problem, right? Which is something that Lemoine goes through in his article as well. You can basically say, well, how what is the likelihood of it emerging from that particular lab in China versus like any other lab in Wuhan? Or, you know, maybe it could be the the likelihood of it emerging, like maybe the virus was developed in Russia and then someone from Russia caught it and then went to Wuhan. And then, you know, like so there's all these different possibilities that you're not computing when you're trying to calculate these 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 types of probabilities. Like it's so absurd. Like there um the probability actually in contrast to the natural origin, so millions of people in China come into contact unprotected, unprotected with animals and bats in rural China, and they're probably catching bat coronaviruses all the freaking time. And unlike people who work in labs, they're not using protection, they're not using safety protocols. And there's many, many more people doing that stuff. There's many more people interacting with animals and getting bat coronaviruses and all these different things than there are people working in labs on bat coronaviruses. So actually, it is much more likely that a virus should emerge in that context versus like a lab, right? Just like using like kind of an intuitive process, you can detect that. Another problem with the lab theory is that it requires you to make a whole bunch of ad hoc hypotheses for no apparent reason, except if you want to insist that the lab theory is correct. For example, so it, you don't go in a lab just from like studying bat coronaviruses and trying to create like the basically the, the research that was happening in in the in uh, the lab that people think the 
the virus leaked from was um, they're trying to create like a bat coronavirus that could better um, attach to human cells. So yeah, that does sound like SARS-CoV-2. So people are like, oh, that's suspicious. But actually, that makes complete sense that that kind of research would have been going on in Wuhan, right? Like they had, there, there was SARS-1 there. Um, so th- that, that's not that suspicious. That that wouldn't necessarily raise like the possibility that much. But it's one thing to be studying something like that, right? It's another thing to create a virus that actually can successfully um, attach to human cells and survive and spread. That's not a simple process, okay? There's steps that need to be taken. And the, the, the head scientist at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, where people suspect the, the, the virus leaked from, she was publishing her work all throughout this time. And there was no indication that, that she was even close to creating what we now no is SARS-CoV-2, okay? There's no actual evidence of that. Um, the closest, so people think, uh, based on our limited knowledge of, of coronaviruses, that um, they know like the, the probable kind of uh, precursor to SARS-CoV-2, which is the a necessary element to, having, to creating this virus. So you need that precursor. And people think that it was like blended with... Um, a, a different kind of gene sequence so that it could better attach to the human cells and then SARS-CoV-2 happens. But essentially, if if she, who's the head scientist who's kind of like um, um, being blamed here, um, she would have had to have at least sequenced the closest, pos- the closest relative that we know of, of SARS-CoV-2, which she didn't until um, January 2020, which is after the pandemic broke out in China. So... You would have to make an ad hoc hypothesis, which is a hypothesis that you make just to reinforce the theory that she was either lying about knowing that or she had sequenced it already and hadn't told anyone or she was doing this research and no one ever heard of it anywhere, including her colleagues. Like, And no one no one heard about it through the grapevines. You have no reason to assume any of these things, except if you want to reinforce the original hypothesis. Does this make sense, Alex? Like what I'm saying? Yes. Basically, what you're saying is that the everybody who's writing about this has already arrived at their yes, conclusion exactly. and then works backwards from it. Just the same way that um, lockdowns were justified and just the same way it, like um, science and the scientific method has been compromised repeatedly by uh, policymaking processes and journalistic coverage throughout the pandemic anyway. So it's yeah. a repeat of all the same errors. Exactly. Like you would like if if your theory requires you to make assumptions, um, like you have no evidence to make at all. There's zero evidence to make it, and you have to keep on making them. Like say, oh well, maybe she discovered it naturally, and then she was studying in the lab, and then she was able to make it even stronger. And and yet no one heard about this. She didn't publish anything as she was going through this process, which is what she had been doing before. Like there's no evidence of any of these things. Like just because a lab was studying bat coronaviruses and they were studying like combining bat coronaviruses with like a protein to make it more easily latch onto the human cell, it doesn't mean that raises the possibility that it it leaked from a lab. But and as Lemoine, uh, as as a example Lemoine gives in his article, so does you, Alex, like being a man that raises the possibility that you're a serial killer, right? But that doesn't mean that you're, it's more probable that you are a serial killer, 
You know what I mean? Like, because most serial killers are men, right? So like, but that doesn't, you know, that's not a way of doing, of, uh, of doing like, like knowledge formation. Like you can't just put together a few coincidences and say, well, this is enough circumstantial evidence. Balance of probabilities now are in favor of the lab theory. That's not how it works. It's not how it, how it works. Um, and like, so finally, I just want to say like one thing about the natural origin and people have been saying, well, we haven't been able to identify a human host. Yeah, it's, that's no surprise. COVID-19 is a freaking bad flu. So it was probably traveling around Wuhan or it could have even emerged in Hubei province, which is a much bigger geographical re region than Wuhan. Somewhere in the countryside, someone got it and started traveling around because it's so mild and people don't die from it typically. And, you know, eventually someone made its way to Wuhan and it, that's when it was first detected. That's it. And yeah, yeah. like finding a, an animal origin in that situation, it would it's probably not possible because it was probably going around undetected, jumping from person to person to person for like weeks. So tracing that back to an animal source will be very, very difficult. There's so many animals and farms and all these different. It doesn't it didn't necessarily have to jump from bat to human. Right. It could have jumped from bat to another animal, to human. We don't know. Well, also, there, there were samples taken from uh, sewers in Spain and Italy, which found that the COVID SARS-CoV-2, COVID-19, had been present in people in Spain and Italy uh, in the middle of 2019. Yeah. like So, we, so mm -hmm. this thing was already traveling around. And exactly. the yeah. only, the, the as we've said repeatedly over and over again, the change isn't the the presence of this thing or any of the myriad of variations. The change is in the WHO declaring it a pandemic and all the narrative management that spins off from that. That's the change. The actual reality of, of SARS-CoV-2 is that it is non-fatal and sometimes barely noticeable for people who have had it. And I've spoken to people in... Uh, this part of the world that I live in, who've actually had it. Some of them fell ill for a couple of days. Some of them barely noticed because that's the nature of this thing. What we're dealing with is a is something which is sold as this great um, hideous thing, which in reality doesn't match up to it, which has actually been floating around for a long time. So to then try and hypothesize your way to the point where you can say, well, it it had to have developed from this lab because it's just so rare. That's just not true. It's just it these the the myriad of variations of um, the the base SARS virus make it much more likely that this is a naturally occurring variant. And to reiterate what we were saying at the top of this particular section, the only reason this got traction in the first place was because Trump and his allies were pushing it because of their own reasons, to damage the Chinese as part of their ongoing trade war issues. But also the reason why it didn't take get traction in the US media last year and was dismissed as a conspiracy theory was purely because the dominant faction in the US ruling class who were, who were against Trump decided that anything he said had to be discredited. And now he's gone and the, and the, the corpse of Joe Biden is slumped in the White House, 
well that now the theory can be resurrected again because well they're in a difficult series of trade talks with the chinese there's a series of other uh, flashpoints with the chinese that are um, amping up in tension well now this is a useful narrative that they can break out to put more pressure on the chinese government as part exactly. of their the yep. propaganda war between the two so just because trump said it didn't mean it was false but also just because trump said it didn't mean it was true and this is all narrative management. This, uh, as Layla's demonstrated, this is scientifically dubious at best. And those pushing this are making exactly the same errors based on, um, really ideology rather than scientific investigation. One of the things I've seen in, um, cause there was a recent, uh, Wall Street Journal piece on this uh, from a, undisclosed source in the u.s intelligence agencies uh, they're always like, the best ones i find <laughs> they come up with the best stories that's how that's how you get to objective reality by listening to those guys oh yeah well you'll be pleased to know that the the, the article in atlantic said that the the uh, biden has demanded u.s intelligence now reassess its verdict from last year <sighs> anyways one of the pieces of evidence they give is like well isn't it suspicious that three people from this lab got sick just before the pandemic start. I mean, is that suspicious? How many people get the flu every single year? Well, not now. <laughs> Usually before COVID times, yeah. 8% of people in the population across the year would get the flu. So if you assume that the distribution is equal across all months, and obviously we know that some months are more prone to getting the flu than other months, and when those people got the flu, it was flu season in China. So the probability was a bit higher. But let's just say the probability is equally distributed. Then you could predict that at least um, at least uh, six people out of the 1,000 that work at the Wuhan Institute of Virology would have gotten the flu. And the leak says claims that they went to the hospital trying to say that therefore they had a severe illness, which makes it slightly more, more probable that this was COVID-19, according to them. But the fact of the matter is that China, in China, people go to the hospital very often when they get sick. It's it's part of the cultural, socio, like, habits there. Um, there's no actual evidence that they were hospitalized, though. I just want to make that clear. So, actually, no, that's not good evidence. People are just putting together, they're duct taping a, bun a bunch of circumstantial evidence and um, using the, the sample size fallacy and making all these ad hoc hypotheses without acknowledging that they're ad hoc and then saying, wow, this is just too suspicious. And what the United States government is doing is is using the same kind of reasoning to present this lab leak hypothesis as, a, as at least plausible, right? And so when you, when, you, when you make that assumption that this is more plausible or just as plausible as the natural origin, then you get stuck in this stupid debate about whether China was like, responsible of gross negligence or was it actually responsible for malicious intent right that's the kind of debate that's gonna actually be happening now now that people have accepted the fact that like this is actually a legitimate theory to begin with okay so they've already taken you past the first step they've already created the basis on which to create um to to increase imperialist tensions it's a trap it's a trap yeah okay like i don't care about china i don't care i I think that the idea that they released this is intentionally is ridiculous. It's not even worth consideration. I also think that the idea that they were being negligent or whatever 
is also re- ne- negligent about what? Releasing a bad flu that doesn't kill 99.9% of the people it infects? And it's like... Worst bioweapon like, ever, like, really, isn't it? <laughs> like, what What exactly did they do here? They weren't... China is has its own responsibilities to bear in terms of managing this illness. Like, they're also as hysterical. And they did lockdowns too, which were probably very... Like, were definitely extremely destructive to the proletariat there. But they're not responsible for the way in which the, 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 the so-called, like, pandemic was dealt with in Canada, UK, and the United States. That is on the shoulders of the politicians here. They didn't have to do all that stuff. They just did it because they're morons and they're retards and they're anti-human. So this has nothing to do with China. This only benefits one group of people and it's the bourgeoisie because the United States is involved in this imperialist war with China. It needs to show finance capital that it's still big and tough. And so it's it's ratcheting up tensions with China. Like you're seeing it more and more. Like Biden has become is way more hawkish towards China than people predicted. Almost almost as much as Trump, actually. Like um, Pelosi called for a... Um, uh, I think a boycott of the Beijing Olymp- Olympics or something like that recently as well. Like, so, I mean, I, like just using basic, like really basic dialectical materialism is enough to make you understand that this is like fake news. Just like understanding how this knowledge is emerging, giving the context is enough to show you that this is fucking false. Yeah, and Like it's all you need to know. You don't need to go through all of the science and whatever, just like the pandemic. The way in which the narratives are managed is important to understand because when you talk about this to people, they'll say, well, you know, we just need to find out the truth and maybe they did leak it and maybe there's a way to look at this that also implicates the US government. But that shows... An astonishing naivety as to how narratives are managed in imperialist countries. What will be done with this is, even if there is some sort of balanced reporting in the higher levels of the bourgeois media saying, oh, well, on the one hand this, on the other hand that, maybe this or maybe that, any subtlety in that will be stripped out when it comes to actually the propaganda that's delivered here. And what it will be, what it will be boiled down to was China leaked this. That's what it will be boiled down to and repeated yes, over exactly. and over and over again. Mm-hmm. And that's what will sink in yeah. with a certain layer of the population. Now, we've already gone through like the reasons why we don't think that this is a likely, the, the lab leak theory, either accidental or deliberate, is a likely um, cause for this. But what the, the certainty is that the, the way the propaganda will be constructed is to tend towards delivering a fake certainty to people. All that people will remember is, ah, oh, China leaked something and lied about it, and now there's apparently all these dead people. Oh, and look, we're in the middle of an economic crisis. Oh, it's all China's fault. And, so true. and if you can't yeah. see how dangerous that is, then you're a fool. And if you can't see how that will be used by both sides of the divide, of the bourgeois divide in the United States, because the Republican and the Democratic parties stand for the same class forces. It's just that those forces are a little bit divided about the way forward in, in the hole that the US, US capitalism find itself in. And when if the economy does go bang this year, what do you think they're going to use as propaganda to try and dig themselves out of this? The, the Republicans are going to go ape shit, saying that the Chinese leaked this and now our economy's crashed and not only is it Biden's fault, it's the Chinese fault. We need to stand up to China. We need to spend, um, you know, $800 billion immediately on a death ray or something like that. 
Uh, and then the Democrats will do the same thing. And by the time you know it, the, the same bourgeois, bourgeois and petty bourgeois layers who have indulged themselves with COVID hysteria for the last year will now be screaming to get tough with China without really knowing what that means or the consequences of it. So, again, this is not the basis of science. This is the basis of narrative management and propaganda. And that's how you need to view this, because that's really what this is all about. And all of these things and narratives, they're played with by cynical actors and idiotic actors in the bourgeois sphere, because they can play with them, because it's not them that's going to be facing any deadly consequences from them. So bear this in mind, and everybody's got to think through, like, why this is being said now and what the motivations are, because only in understanding the the motivations of the political and media actors who are putting this forward, can you actually understand this? The scientific case for this is incredibly weak, and that's why all the writers about it have to distort the scientific method in order to reach their obviously pre-established conclusions that are being pushed for entirely political reasons. And it also presents itself as like, we're just looking into this, like we're just being neutral and objective. and But actually... In order to even consider that the loud leak theory is a legitimate hypothesis, you have to make all these other ad hoc hypotheses that presume the legitimacy of the hypothesis you are just trying to prove, okay? Like, to say that this is a um, more plausible than the natural origin or has a lot of evidence to back it up or requires yet another investigation by the United States or WHO into China... I think these are all political statements that actually are not borne out by the available ed- evidence, nor is it borne out by a simple logical process. And the, whether it came from a lab or not, like the way in, the, in which this virus um, was actualized in our societies has nothing to do whether it came from where it came from, whether it was from a lab, whether it was from natural origins. It doesn't matter. It, it was a fake pandemic, like made on the grounds of like very, very bad science like and like because we have a ruling class that is not fit to rule and not fit to look after the welfare of their populations and never have been um and that's the real issue here like i think this whole thing is a huge distraction like where is it coming from what's the origin blah 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 like when i first heard about this like when trump um started going on about it i was like well who cares right like Does it matter whether it came from a lab or whether it came from um, some farm in Wuhan or whatever like that? I'm under under lockdown here and the schools are closed. It doesn't because the schools don't need to be closed and we don't need to be in lockdown. I'm still under freaking lockdown. The schools are still closed in Ontario. Wouldn't it make you feel better, though, if you could blame Xi Jinping for that rather than the heroic lard bucket Doug Ford? No, I, I blame Doug Ford. I don't think Xi Jinping has any fucking thing to do with the way that Doug Ford has been retarded about this. Like, he's nothing to do with it. Um, and like, I'm not on China's side or something. Like, people have said, well, why are you defending China? Go listen to our China episode. There you go. Yeah. I All power to the Chinese pro- proletariat, of course. And I really hope they do a revolution and like freaking do a people's investigation into, into COVID-19 in, in China. 
Um, I would be very supportive of that, actually. But um, I, I, I don't have any love lost for the Chinese state or I, have, I don't have any interest in quote unquote protecting them. I do have an interest, though, in reducing the amount of imperialist violence that happens because that only hurts one group of people. It's not the bourgeoisie. It's not these petty bourgeois scientists and journalists who are pushing the story now. It's the working classes. Who's you, who do you think is going to go to war? Who's, who do you think is going to get drafted if, if that ever needs to happen? right? Like it's most of the people will be working class, of course. Like, so I have a huge interest in preventing that from happening. Um, And yeah, if it means being skeptical and demanding that the bourgeoisie show me direct evidence before asking me to believe in something, I think that's at this point, I think that's the only correct position actually. So if you're saying that this is plausible, okay, show me direct evidence. Show me direct evidence that that Dr. Xi at the Wuhan Institute of Virology was studying SARS-CoV-2 or she had discovered it in the wild and she was studying it or that she had created it. Show me direct evidence. I will not accept circumstantial evidence in this situation. I want direct evidence from Would you. Would you accept an overwhelming amount of speculation? Because uh, the, 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 no. our friend in the Atlantic, <laughs> he, he says that like, or if everybody's saying it, uh, then, well, it must be true. The time for speculation is over. We must assume this true. <laughs> because there's been because we, we've got enough speculation to not speculate anymore. Ugh, Come on. No, I, I won't accept it, Alex. Not this time. Maybe a year ago I would have accepted it, but at this <laughs> point I've lost I've lost faith in these people. They've made me lose faith in them. I, I've lost faith faith in well, the scientific community. I've more than lost faith in journalists. And um yeah, I mean, I definitely never had faith in the fucking bourgeoisie. So, like, no, I don't believe you. I want to see direct evidence. Show me it. If you think your case is so strong, you should be able to find some. Anyways, we well, we talked about this for a long time, but uh, worth it. <laughs> well, it is important, and but this does uh, link us to the next uh, uh, piece in our show today, which is the um, the thoughts and prayers based economy, which is all of the economy. And if you thought there was a lack of hard evidence and uh, solid reasoning in the lab leak hypothesis, well, there's a real lack of actually, um, well, anything real inside the economy these days, uh, given um, the uh, confidence-boosting measures that the Federal Reserve constantly needs to engage in just to soothe the the nerves of a, a distressed market. Um, hence the appearance of the the eminent Greece Jerome Powell on TV every day uttering soothing <laughs> words to the markets to try and keep them calm for another 24 hours so they can stagger onwards towards uh, Biden's bi- great big $6 billion blowout. No, Alex, um, a trillion, which- trillion dollars with a T. <laughs> oh shit yeah I, I was i was wildly underestimating that six trillion dollars um not that these numbers actually have much meaning anymore except as confidence boosting measures but um we'll start off with the uh our, our now frequently visits to the stories about the rate of inflation you'll have all seen if you look at the financial press or look at the uh, coked-up screaming collection of morons in CNBC, they uh, alternate between the saying that um, 
inflation is back and we've got a panic or that inflation isn't back and this is just a temporary blip caused by reopening. So, Layla, um, should we scream panic or offer thoughts and prayers and say soothing words or all of the well, above? Um, I, I all the above. Uh, I have heard, though, that the uh, the banks are talking about talking about tapering. I think they're getting a little nervous at this mm. point. And actually, I was reading that the Bank of England, so your bank, yours truly, no, not yours truly, your bank. Yeah, I, uh, I am, I am, I am a oh, shareholder. You, right, in yes, that we all are. <laughs> exactly right. Um, they, they have kind of. Uh, talked about whispered about raising rates the bank of england and bank of canada has um have have has already started tapering like actually from a long time ago they've they started like a month ago because they're they're really concerned about the housing market here um like we've seen uh currencies in response to those moves like the pound start to appreciate in anticipation of an earlier interest rate hike um from their respective uh, respective banks um, so both Canada and the BOE, uh, the Bank of England, the the inflation jump we saw in this year in May, um, it was higher than what they predicted once again. They were predicting 2.9% year on year, they year over year rather. So compared to the same month last year, um, but they saw 3.1. So it's not as much as the last time, like the difference last time was much greater. Um, but I think people are, this is like just another piece of the, of, of something that's going to be making the markets nervous and we'll see how they close at the end of the day. Um, it's still early to see how they react, but, uh, yeah. What are your thoughts on it? Well, I mean, the, the inflation, um, debate inside that the bank of England is always, always distorted more by the fact that the um there is a gigantic political problem when discussing inflation because like the successive generations of politicians have not really and truly understood it also a even a small amount of inflationary increase these days can send markets into a panic and can conceivably panic the Bank of England as well because of the rather fragile state of the British economy. We've also got a gigantic housing bubble here, which uh, is the only truly lasting success of the British governments, all the British governments that have existed since 2010, which is to reinflate the housing bubble. And we are currently seeing prices increase at the most rapid rate since 2006. Uh, so great achievement there, everybody. Well done, we pulled it off. Um, and so all of this means that like they're um, very they're keen on and have been for a long time, like keeping rates low. They've been low since the uh, great financial crash of 2008. but we're in a similar position to the United States in that like they've been dumping like all this money via quantitative easing into the banking system buying up uh, UK government bonds. And the outcome of that was supposed to be uh, greater investment levels uh, from the the banks and major financial institutions, which just hasn't materialized. And that's because they see no profitable outlet inside Britain for all this liquidity that they've had injected into them by the Bank of England. And therefore, we've got a 
we've got a problem and the only solution that these idiots in charge have is well we'll do more of the same and we'll try and keep interest rates low now the problem at the moment is that the one of the reasons why they were interested in keeping the perception even just the perception of inflation to be low is because obviously like the lower they can present inflation as being the more easy it is to get away with like the fact we've had stagnant wages for decades now um it's looking like we might be reaching the end of the capacity to put off yeah, this decision. Yeah, I agree. Mm-hmm. Which is which is all the when you think about not just Britain and the United States but this is true of like other major powers as well. I see you see that uh France has, France has been declared to be in recession today. Um all they've really done since 2008 I would argue is reinflate the bubbles that were present pre-2008 and essentially put off any other decision just by getting the central banks to throw money into things. And that's all, all that's happened is, a dis, the, as you've talked about before, the displacement of certain risks into hedge funds rather than banks. And we've just ended up back in a situation where we're going to have roughly the same thing happen again, but on an even more devastating level. And they can't put off these decisions any longer. In fact, as we've mentioned before, COVID really did allow them to inject an awful, even greater amounts of money into the system and put off making um, killer decisions to a later date. Um, again, I think we're at the end of the capacity to actually do that, though. And of course, one of the indications of that is the way in which the repo market has been acting lately, which I think a lot of people are saying this is indicative of collapse. I disagree. Um, I think it is just indicative of the um, contradictions really heightening here in the financial system. Uh, Because, of course, capitalism cannot resolve its own contradictions fully. It can only put it um, towards a later date or it can move it around in different places. Um, And so what's happening in the repo market, long story short, is that because the Fed has said that they will not raise interest rates until 2024, um, yields for bonds is higher in the future than it is currently. So treasuries. What does that mean? It means that if your yield is higher, your bond price is going to be lower. So what the banks have started doing is um, trying to short treasuries, so trying to short bonds, meaning that they are anticipating that the price will go down. So they're buying them now, selling them, and then they're going to buy them back at a lower price later and pocket the difference. And so they're going to the repo market where um, a lot of uh, where bond treasuries are, are bought by financial institutions, hedge funds and banks, and they're trying to get people to sell them bonds. But because there's so much liquidity in the market, people don't want the money um, more than they want the treasuries. So the banks have started paying like negative interest rates even to buy bonds from people, meaning that they 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 say, okay, we're gonna we're gonna loan you like a billion dollars, but we're gonna pay you interest on that to get your treasury. Um, so as a result, there's been a shortage of treasuries in the repo market. So the Fed has had to come in and in higher and higher amounts, like every few days, they've been um, um, putting in tr- uh, treasuries into the repo market. 
So and draining money as a result. So they're draining they're draining liquidity from the market. So uh, more than five hundred billion dollars per day are being drained out. And keep in mind that the quantitative easing by the Fed is like a hundred and twenty billion dollars a month. So they've basically like in a single day or a few days like outdone like three months of quantitative easing. Um, so that's like so the fed is kind of like in this really bad place because what it's doing to help the economy is simultaneously creating like problems in the system and contradictions um if um the fed continues with its quantitative easing at the same amount it means that there's going to be a shortage of treasuries because of course quantitative easing is when the fed puts money into the system by buying back bonds. And so then the system will start to um, trade uh, on more and more toxic bonds and more and more toxic um, financial assets instead of the treasuries. So this makes the system more and more unstable, right? And so um, it's, but at the same time, if they raise, if they raise interest rates, like um, they're going to be like, potentially causing a crash because there's so much debt in the system. But if if they taper QE, right? So if they if they do the opposite. So say they're like, okay, you know what? QE's not working out. Let's st- let's start to taper QE. Let's start to put more bond supply into the system. What will happen in that situation is that um, the supply of bonds will go up, meaning that the prices will go down, which means that it will increase the bond yields. Okay, which is the interest on the bonds, and so what 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 will that what that will do is put uh, pressure on uh, debts of many kinds, including mortgages and including corporate debt. So the Fed doesn't really know, and it probably um, doesn't know if like the corporations, especially, are able to tolerate that increase in the yields, the the increase on the debt that they're holding. Right. And so they're, that's why they're so hesitant and scared to like raise to stop to taper QE too quickly, because if they do it um, more quick than the economy is growing and corporate profits are growing, then it's going to cause a lot of corporations to go underwater because they have so much debt. Um so they're in a really tough place, like trying to balance all of these like uh, countervailing forces um, all the while. Like if they continue doing something, it make, makes the markets much more unstable. But if they do something, they might cause like the, the bond markets to crash, which may, you know, go and cause other asset uh, bubbles to crash. Um, I think that um, also like the bond markets are very sensitive to at this point because they're so used to having quantitative easing. Um, pretty much like um, the quantitative easing in the United States didn't really start stop ever. Like they they stopped purchasing new ones at some point in 2015, I believe, but they still maintained the balance sheet that they already had. Right. So when they're bonds would mature, they would buy new ones to replace what they had on their balance sheet. So they were still doing QE up until 2017. And then they slowly started replacing less and less of their balance sheet. But then they started up again in September 2019, when the recession really started. Okay. So like, the markets are so used to QE, they're they're really like, even in 2013, um, when Bernanke just said, just just said that they might start tapering. He just said that. It caused what's known as the taper tantrum, right? Where there was like 
um, like all these people started selling their bonds because they thought that uh, bond supplies would go up and then prices would go down. Um, so it caused like a, but then, so then Bernanke had to like go and like, um, you know, do some damage control and stuff like that. And, you know, they never really tapered it until like, they never really started tapering it really until 2017 and only then for like less than two years. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah so like so it's <laughs> note the date when QE began again, as we've said this before, but it's important to emphasize the central bank intervention in the U.S. economy began before the pandemic. Yeah. That's something which isn't emphasized. So I, I think it's unlikely, despite what the Fed is saying, that they're going to significantly reduce QE. At most, they will stop perhaps buying new bonds and just like maintain their enormous balance sheet, okay, of trillions of dollars or something i don't know i even know how much like uh they have on their balance sheet in terms of bonds so they're they're but they, they just can't they can't stop they can never stop pretty much i think it's it's going to be qe forever um the first scenario i talked about will happen in that um the repo markets will just turn towards more and more toxic assets and which will make the system more unstable so then when we finally do see an interest rate it just makes it all the more likely and it's already very likely that when we do see an interest rate hike which is the only thing the fed really has left in terms of a lever of what to do about inflation uh we're going to see a collapse like for sure like it, it it's it's already clear that this the markets have become the cracks are already showing on the surface and repo market is an indication of this yeah the the trading in toxic assets uh, in, ever increasing is going to be crucial because this is uh, one of the factors that was behind the 2008 crash was the fact that the all of the banks were trading in these bundles of toxic assets and suddenly when everybody lost confidence then everybody was left holding gigantic piles of shit basically which is what these uh, toxic assets are still now. But they start trading in these at higher and higher volumes and trading essentially in uh, bundles of bad debt that stands little to no chance of ever being repaid. Then we're going to end again. We're going to end up back in roughly uh, the same place, but perhaps even worse than we were in 2008. And the just to give an indication of the of how little scope the capitalist class really has for maneuver in Britain. We've already reached the stage where the Bank of England is essentially doing direct debt monetization. Yeah. Um, so there's, they're running out of room for maneuver as well. Now, what is imperative for the politicians and the bourgeois planners to maintain is that they, they have to maintain, for political and economic reasons, the illusions that the system has depended upon since the what's popularly referred to as the neoliberal turn over 40 years ago. And that's that the um, the gap between um, people's, regular people's uh, lifestyles and wages being bridged by endless amounts of credit, that that can be sustained. Or that the, um, you know, that uh, people on fairly middling incomes can become property tycoons when all of that's based on gigantic amounts of debt. Or that um, you can borrow infinite amounts for uh, even things like um, adding things to your home and things like that, because of course you can't afford to do that because your again your pay is stood still. All of these yeah. things are based on the concept 
and the reality uh, for a long time now of unlimited credit. And that's why they're desperate to not cause this thing to crash, because if they do, then that's a incredibly serious, not just an economic, but an incredibly serious political problem for the legitimacy of the system as a whole, if that okay, is so, suddenly withdrawn. So, Alex, uh, speculation time. Alex has some interesting predictions. Do you want to share them with the audience? Okay. Well, this is my uh, <laughs> read on the future, uh, judged from um, um, my uh, a materialist analysis of the situation, not based on soothsaying or thoughts and prayers. I, can, I can't guarantee that this is going to be accurate, but I can guarantee it's probably more accurate than that which you'd read in the Financial Times these days, um, who seem to be basically basing their uh, predictions on wishful thinking and uh, the reading of a chicken's innards. Um so, um, if there is, and it's looking more likely than ever now, a, a crash of the US and therefore the British and therefore the Canadian economies, because none of us is getting out of this one clean. Yeah. Um, we're all in it together. It's all in it together, everybody. Enjoy the ride. Um, it's of course so likely to take with it the French and the German economies as well. And therefore most of Europe, by the way, um, so don't any Europeans listening to this, you're not getting away with this either. So if this goes down, now last time in 2008, famously, or actually not famously, because not a lot of people actually know this, uh, even though it was reported at the time, that the Chinese government stepped in and basically bailed out the American government by buying enormous amounts of uh, American government debt. Now they did that for the key, uh, a key strategic reason from their point of view, which is that America still to this day, but it's even more so then, is the key destination point for Chinese manufactured goods. So if the American government and the economy slides over the edge of a cliff, then that would have been severely damaging for Chinese economic prospects. So it was in the interests of the Chinese ruling class to do that bailout. If, however, this time they have got to the point where for a variety of reasons, they're not prepared to do that. It could be that they have developed their own internal consumer market to the point where they could take the hit of exports to the US dramatically declining. It could be that the situation with the, with regard to the imperialist rivalry with the US has reached the point where they think, well, weakening the US is actually now in our interests to do so. Uh, so why bail, why bail out a country which has just been causing you more problems than solutions. Or it mm. could reach the point where the Chinese internal situation won't tolerate them bailing out what's perceived to be an enemy. Or it could be that the Chinese uh, internal situation has been aggravated by significant and rising levels of class struggle to the point where the Chinese are more focused on securing the domestic front than they are on bailing out the Americans. All of these are factors which makes the gigantic bailout that the Chinese did for the Bush administration um, in 2008 much less likely that they would do for Biden or any Republican successor. Because that my next part of my prediction is that the the Democrats at the moment are trying various different um, dramatic looking maneuvers to boost the economy. The latest of which being as we previously mentioned the six trillion spending package that's being <laughs> unveiled which is the figures are so high it's ridiculous 
Um, there, there is a basis in sort of um, the re- recent history to look at, though, that, which is that the when the Fed started making moves early on in the COVID uh, period last year, these weren't having the impact that they wanted. It took the another gigantic infusion of government cash in the form of the CARES Act to stabilize things uh, that were looking rocky. So this again is going to be a if if passed and it's a big if due to political divisions inside the inside the Senate um how how much can the democrats even get their own more skeptical senators on board for it more likelihood is of course a budget will pass though whether it's be the same size is another question but what it would essentially be what the CARES Act was is, is going to, it would be the same thing, which is this budget would be like a gigantic infusion of cash into the system, uh, principally uh, into the financial system to try and boost things. And that, for a variety of reasons, isn't going to work because this, it, 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 it's the law of diminishing returns. Each time they try this, they will get less out of it. Because the likelihood is that if they, if they do do that, it will only hold off things for another few more months. The U.S. economy is going to go into recession, and if it does do that, it is pretty much guaranteed that the Democrats get wiped out in Congress and the Senate, the Republicans return, and therefore it's even more likely that the uh, the Chinese aren't going to bail them out because there'll be ever more. They're even they're doing it right now, like all the Republican dingbats running around screaming, "China-wide people died. China is the enemy." Uh, the communists are taking over the world, which is, as see our previous episode for how laughable that is, um, unlikely to be bailed out. Therefore, increase in tensions even more. Therefore, also, what is the US ruling class going to do when faced with this catastrophe? Fuck. The likelihood is they take the same route that all the other ruling classes have taken, including the Japanese ruling class and their prolonged crisis, which is they'll look at various um high-tech means of getting out of their situation and find that none of those work so they'll go back to old faithful which is how can we make the u.s working class work longer hours for less reward for less money and how can we actually take away that few benefits which they all which the u.s working class has and that will be the so move. innovative wow it is that's why <laughs> capitalism survives it's just so innovative it's in a, it innovates new ways to present the same bullshit now if you how go back they do to it how do they come up with these ideas so they've got to pay a lot of think tankers to come up with this shit um if you go back and actually look at like there's a chapter in uh, capital volume one which deals with the um how the capitalists try and shift the part of the working day necessary for the reproduction of the laborer. So how does the, um, how the working day is in Marx's analysis is divided into the part of the working day, which is necessary for the, la- the, the worker to reproduce himself or herself and the part of mm-hmm. the working day, which is the portion that goes, uh, the, that's the, sur- the surplus value that goes to the capitalist. The capitalist is always looking to extend that surplus value. And one of the ways they try and do that is they, well, of course, they try and reduce the amount which is necessary for the maintenance of the worker. And now one of the ways in which they've done this in Britain in recent years is this is why we have tax credits. This is why we have such significant um, government support for low-wage work, because mm-hmm. that's a way of boosting the share of the uh, the surplus value of the employers by essentially getting, well, 
the the tax base of principally the working class to subsidize other elements of the working class via taxpayer funded subsidies to industry this is something that will probably be tried in the united states to a various to ver- to various degrees they'll try and subsidize low wage work they'll try and get to the point where they can um extract more out of the working class they'll if it's a rep- certainly if it's a republican congress and senate and maybe even a president after 2024 they'll try and do things like nationwide extension of things like right to work the annihilation of even the pathetic amount of bargaining power that the uh, u.s trade unions currently have they'll try and eliminate that everything towards making that part of the working day which uh, is the surplus value of the employer more uh, will be tried in the most crude methods possible. And to, uh, we have an episode coming out shortly on uh, the policing function of the capitalist state. Well, one of the things we discuss in that is the, the use is usage of policing to crush working class resistance. And this is the, the direct application of violence by the American capitalist state to crush any working class resistance, well, that will certainly be on the cards when they're looking to extract more and more from the working class to get themselves out of this crisis. Um, to pause there briefly on the domestic front, you're also going to we're also going to be looking at if the China, especially if the Chinese don't bail out the Americans, we're going to be looking at much further heightened imperialist tensions in the Pacific region in the uh the sub-saharan african region and in fact everywhere where the chinese and the americans are now directly competing for access to markets and natural resources all of that is going to escalate dramatically and dangerously as well but i've i that's some of my predictions do you want to come in and uh say anything on that or, or speculate for your on, on, for your own predictions um yeah i think I think that, yeah, pretty much like as I've said many, many times, I think that the USA and Canada are and the UK are are heading towards a Japanese type economy of like permanently low inflation and even deflation, low growth. Um, so Japan has able has been able to get by because in the in in a way that hasn't been absolutely destructive to its population because it started out from a very capital intensive place so it, it's industries are very capital intensive like they're high tech in other words um and also they have very low class organization and so they've been able to really drive down the working conditions of the japanese working class without without too much opposition um, I don't think that's the case for the United States, though, in terms of the working class. I think that the working class in the United States has a much more vibrant revolutionary history. Um, they're a lot spunkier. Like, I think that, um, I don't know, they're not as atomized as Japan is. So I think that that your predictions are, I think, could could really be affected much more so um, by the working class in the United States. Like, I think there's a lot of potential there, but um, this is, that's very speculative. It's a, a subjective factor. The problem is, though, that, like, even with the relative strength of the United States working class, the big problem is a lack of leadership. And so I don't know how that's going to go. Like, as as things are being like as people are getting pressed down especially after a major economic about after the the major economic crash that's on its way um i think it's going to have effects that 
we didn't see in 2008 that we haven't seen in decades. Like, I think it's going to be a major one. And I don't want to sound like apocalyptical or hysterical, but I, I do think it's going to be like a qualitative difference for like a lot of people in a way that they haven't experienced. Um, and I think that will drive a lot of resistance, but like how that energy is funneled towards and like what emerges from that, I think it's very unfortunate. There's unfortunate that there's no communist party in the United States because there's not, there, there'll be no one to capture it. I, I mean, it might emerge, but currently there isn't. Yeah. There's, there is uh periods in time when there's been a lot of heroic struggle in the U S working class. That's uh much like, in Britain, though, that's not been for quite a long time now due to the yeah. comprehensive crushing of U.S. working class forces in reality by the middle 50s, even earlier than yeah. us. Um, that has a long hangover. Uh, the, that's not to say that such resistance won't emerge because to draw on what you were saying now, the 2008 crisis is what's remarkable about it is, is that um, because the uh, sta- the standards of living for the productive working class and also the um, even the lower lower end of the working class were they were affected somewhat, but not to the point of generating mass resistance by two thousand and eight. Uh, in the British case, what happened was resistance from a certain layer of the public sector employed working class and a certain layer of the petty bourgeoisie. Uh, and as we've seen, that manifested itself through various different iterations and ended up with the Corbyn phenomenon, and we all know how that ended. Now, though, if the crisis is a lot more severe, which it looks like it will probably be, um, there, the US ruling class will have no option but to directly attack yeah. uh, the productive yeah. working class head-on. And in a way that they haven't had to do as much since 2008 that will produce a lot of resistance where that energy goes is the is the crucial question there is no communist party worthy of the name in either the united states britain or canada um all of them are a joke um in the united states the official communist party is just an uh an add-on to the democrats and has been since it got broken into a million pieces in the McCarthyist period. The Communist Party here is a joke. It's just a sort of, it's just a pathetic extension of the Labour Party. Yeah, um, and I, if I could just jump in temporarily, I think another difference too is that um, since like the 70s, uh, working class resistance has kind of been um, cushioned by enormous an enormous amount of credit, right? Um, yeah. And if that, if that disappears as well, you know, then we're cooking with oil. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, then we're literally, then the bourgeoisie is literally spraying petrol all over the place, basically, <laughs> and lighting yeah. a cigarette. Um, <laughs> but the point about the point about it is like the it reaches a point in a crisis where the ruling class runs out of choices, mm-hmm. and if if it appears to be acting irrationally. It's because we're in the middle of an, an irras- a crisis of an irrational system. They might not choose to go head on and attack um, the, the more powerful bits of the working class if they could find another way around it. But the situation mm-hmm. will be so severe that they have to. They have to go and attack the working class to try and get more out of the working class, to hyper-exploit them more. And that, therefore, a confrontation that has been papered over 
for decades by extensions of credit and the, the bourgeoisie being clever about which bits of the working class it attacks at various different times. It's one of the distinguishing features of Britain in the 80s was the bourgeoisie played it very cleverly in terms of only going after isolated bits of the working class and never doing a sort of generalized assault. Mm-hmm. Um, again, they may have no choice but to do that now. They will try various different ways around it, but they may have no choice but to go head on. So hang on to your helmets, everybody. It's going to be a rough ride. And especially if you may, and this is just my speculation, I don't know if Layla agrees with this, um, you may get in the United States the emergence of a classic, more classically Bonapartist regime. And what I mean by that is, to use Marx's definition from the uh, uh, the 18th Brumaire of Louis Bonaparte and his um, analysis of how the Bonaparte regime comes to power because the classes in France, French society in the late 1840s, early 1850s are deadlocked in a struggle. You may even have a Bonapartist character emerge in American politics uh, to try and carry through um, attacks on the working class using the authoritarian powers of the state to do so with a certain layer of the petty bourgeoisie on his side so you could have a count that won't be trump by the way trump's not got the political skills to be able to carry that shit off um someone like a ron DeSantis could do that possibly mm. um mm. he's got the right coalition building skills he's got the right Ba- uh, basis of appeal to different sectors of the population to do so the democrats probably don't have anybody that could do it so if it's going to be from anyone it's going to be from somebody who could combine a certain popular appeal with a clever enough management of the authoritarian powers of the of the american presidency so DeSantis would be the probably the candidate they would look to for that um i think in in the immediate terms, also the the triumph of the Democratic Party and their associated ridiculous followers, the DSA, is very short-lived. I think they're going to go down in absolute flames with this um, recession um, that comes up, which is going to be so, uh, solidly pinned on them. So yeah. look out for mm-hmm. mo- moves being made in the Republican Party because that's where the figure that's going to try and lead an attack on the American working class, that's where that guy is going to come from. Not that the Democrats are any better, it's just that they're more shit and they're going to be the losers of the next electoral cycle. Um, Yeah, I think we should do another show analyzing this in a bit more detail. Yeah, I think we're going to... Like, something I noticed lately too, Alex, like, maybe it's just me, but, like, I feel like there's a a a bit more critique of some of these more libertarian kind of left capitalist leading uh um um, supported ideologies like i you know there was like that 60 that um barbara walters thing critiquing gender ideology and oh yeah i don't know i just feel like things are a little shifting a little bit too on the cultural front like i think we're gonna see a return to trad yeah which is great for us (laughs) because we're so trad (laughs) yeah this is a trad podcast we're we're all in for this. No, um, you're right. Which is where the the turn the turn that will come will be accompanied in, in economic terms will be accompanied by a turn against like the wild excesses of the sort of the the libertinist leftist uh, period. 
And that that's based not just on current analysis, but that's based on historical analysis as well, not just under capitalism, but all the way back to antiquity. When a system visibly goes into decay, uh, signs of like decadence and uh, libertinism emerge all over the place. Um, and then when the crash happens or when a crisis happens, there's a snap back and a reaction against that. And a clever enough politician will will see that change coming and lean into it. So yeah, there yeah. is going to be mm-hmm. a backlash against all this shit, and and they're not going to have many people to defend them because let's face it, the purveyors of this shit are some of the most obnoxious collection of destructive um, anti-social collection of assholes that you could find anywhere outside of um, the halls of Labour Party headquarters. I, I I deem these cultural expressions like very much like exclusively petty bourgeois stuff. Like I, I, I and same thing with the trad shit. Like I, that's petty bourgeois bullshit as well. I, the working classes have their own modes of family formation and sociality that does not does not match because of the different material conditions. Like what these two groups are trying to are going to try to promote yeah. or promoting like back and forth. Like it's it's all a bunch of bullshit. But like. Um, I think the reason why, though, is like um, when the crash happens, finance capital is going to be fleeing the United States. And so I think this is a return to conservatism, you know, will be like that. The cultural expression of the United States trying to 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 keep finance capital or reacting to that to that flight. You know what I mean? So it's like kind of the so right now, like things are are good, like the market is booming um you know finance capital is 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 being enabled and like um like you know like but but when it it starts to leave and flee and go to more profitable grounds um that's when we're going to be seeing a bit of a backlash to that so i think i I think we should do a show on the ideological expressions of finance but that's like my initial kind of thinking around it yeah if there's capital flight outside out of the united states then you're going to see uh, a turn against all of the cultural and ideological expressions of finance capital um mm-hmm. that's that's an inevitable thing and it's also worth underlining the fact that um trump's type of trump's movement if you could call it that and the inheritors of it are backed by a slightly different set of ruling class interests than like the the democrats are so like the the trump um uh, ruling class base was more based on like domestic based in- extraction industries and things like that um who are going to seek to maximize whatever advantages they have in the coming crisis so you're seeing a sort of in the in the two ruling class parties in the United States you're seeing a sort of breakdown of uh the different selections of interests within the US ruling class and it's going to be interesting to see which one of them comes out on top. And there's a, a good chance that uh, a significant number of them whose interests maybe are financial but also want to keep their place as a uh, preeminent U.S. company are going to side are going to flip sides away from the Democrats as well. So all of these um, economic expressions will find their way into expressions of ideology. And as you say, we should definitely do another show exploring that. Well, I guess to close off... Are you feeling uh, nervous, Alex, or are you feeling I, elated? I haven't felt nervous <laughs> since 1996. Oh, so, uh, <laughs> but um, other than that, I, I'm I'm feeling like um, this is definitely we're definitely in the turning of a corner, and the I 
What I think is that the all of, all of the things that they basically just spent 13 years putting off are all going to come back to bite everybody in the ass. Sadly, they're not just going to bite the bourgeoisie in the ass. They're going to bite down on uh, regular people first. And the as to where this goes, again, to go back to Lenin, the, the crisis in any situation is dependent upon the subjective factor. And the subject, the dominant subjective factor is the, the leadership of the working class. And that's the thing that is drastically missing at the moment. Um, but one of the things that history teaches is that the, the capacity of the working class to quickly reorganize and fight back should never be underestimated. Yeah. And I think, um, I think once the working class gets organized and there's, and starts to push itself back into politics and the superstructure will, will start to shift quickly as well. And we're going to see the reemergence of like, you know, um, intelligentsia and um, political figures and stuff that either directly from the working classes or from the petty bourgeoisie or even from the bourgeoisie more uncommonly though um, so hopefully we're going to see a return to, of like you know revolutionary intellectual production and revolutionary action and revolutionary parties and politics in a way that's been absent for at least three decades. Um, yeah, and that's a welcome least. thing considering how god awful like that that whole that whole sphere has been with it's just dominated by like bourgeois ideology and petty bourgeois buffoons. Yeah, it's really I think I'm feeling really nervous at this point. I I deviate from like excitement and elation to like fear and nervousness because I think Canada might become like a third world country uh, after this crash. But um, I mean, who knows what the future holds? Um, and, you know, as Alex always tells me whenever I say things like this, he's like, don't worry, the, the working class may surprise you. <laughs> well, freq frequently so do. <laughs> hopefully they do yeah anyways all right let's wrap this up so i can do a same day edit <laughs> all right thanks for listening everybody and we'll talk to you again soon take care bye <laughs>